your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Did I... Did I hear my engineer say that our station, KPFA, can be heard anywhere in the world? That's absolutely terrifying. (laughs) I'm going to have to start taking this work seriously after 25 or 30 years. You know, word work. Word work is sublime. Toni Morrison says so. I guess those of us, what is that, raised... (laughs) <laughs> raised trying to make the world safe for, for if not for satire, at least for sarcasm, you know. Uh, we need to step back and consider. I made a list last night. I made a list of, oh, maybe 50, 50 um, issues, subjects, uh, theories, things that we all need to grapple with. And then I thought, no, 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 no. Come on, let's narrow it down till it means something. Let's stick with the words. You know, painting is about paint, uh, books, literature, images. Uh, I listened to Sarah Palin, right? Sarah didn't do it. No, come on, Sarah didn't do it. Uh, I wrote down her phrase. Her phrase was, blood libel. Jeez, a holy hyperbole, holy hallmark, I don't know. Uh, the, the speech writers, that's what I should do. I should get into correspondence. Uh, I remember there were several I did write two years ago, especially during the Reagan administration, and uh, they always sent back form letters, nothing, nothing I could use here at KPFA. Uh, the words, you know how it is. The words are melting and they're just uh, running down the page. Uh, words like democracy, words like liberal, melting right before our eyes. I guess, what is it? Uh, I guess it's time to review our notes. Uh, I think, what is that? Uh, I think, I think, no, 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 I try not to think. Somebody once said that 8% of the, let's see, 2% of the people think, 8% of the people think they think, and 90% wouldn't be caught dead. (laughs) I think I'll stay with the 90%, where it's comfortable, you know, where you can count on using a word and getting standard reaction, you know, uh... If I mention anything to do with religion, I can usually get a, a serious negative. Uh, actually, it's an interesting word, religion. I've been reading a little bit of Mark Twain again. He he um, wanted to publish his 
autobiography a hundred years after his death. And the University of California Press has come out with the first volume. Uh, one reviewer said that at least 5% of this first volume is something that hasn't been published before. And that the later volumes, I believe there are to be three total, uh, do have some material that we have not yet read. Uh, I have a dozen old paperbacks, mostly letters from the earth, which have, um, well, they're just bits and pieces and scraps, but it's all the things that he found unpublishable during his lifetime. They're mostly these wonderful rantings and ravings of an old curmudgeon, but some of them are remarkably funny. The best thing for our purposes here at KPFA would be to read uh, things like uh, The Diary of Adam and Eve, in which he uh, he gives feminism a good trouncing, you know. Uh, oh, oh, Mark Twain. Uh, the sort of person, you know, we all want to read and uh, <laughs> would rather not have breakfast with. Anyway, um, I think what I should try to do today is go back to the beginning. Uh, someone on the morning show suggested that I go back to my spots on the morning show. They used to be little critiques. I called them Mind Over Media, and I tried to talk about movies. And um, that's probably the best idea for those eight-minute morning spots. I got stuck at some point talking about what in school we used to call current affairs. And I've thought about it carefully lately, and I've decided that uh, politics... Politics is not the sort of thing that is useful for someone like me to dig into. Uh, I think, of course, I think that our culture, our culture wars, are certainly as serious as our socio-political conflicts. Uh, I think it's all all in the same basket. But uh, most of the time, the political ranting and raving is only about the the sticks and straws on the surface, you know, and by Friday, everything that happened last Tuesday has washed away. Uh, I think I heard on the news this morning that we're not to worry about Gabby, the good congresswoman, whose terrible, terrible, terrible tragedy um, will be with us now for the next year or two, hopefully she will recover, but it's unbearable to watch it minute by minute, day by day, hour by hour. Uh, we need we need to go back to um, something, what is that? Something sensible, something stable. We need a story, a narrative. And uh, I don't think, yes, I don't think the one we've got now is developing very well. I woke up at four this morning and I uh, listened to the latest body count. An absolutely amazing uh, is it 45 dead? No, I won't I won't go over all that. There was uh, another bloodbath terrible bloodbath uh, a suicide bomber managed to take with him uh, scores of people uh, I don't know what we're supposed to 
what we're supposed to feel about these things. Uh, I keep thinking that I'm back in a, an earlier time, uh, you know, the sort of era when, um, you know, bodies were stuck on spikes and heads were put on bridges and, uh, you know, barbarism ruled the land. Of course, that couldn't be happening again. I mean, certainly not here. <laughs> no, today, today, I think I will jump into the movies. That's about my caliber, folks. I don't think that I'm wise enough to discuss uh, the future of mankind or the fate of mankind. Somebody else is going to have to do that. What I am doing is looking at the, uh, what is it, the fallout in the wake of all these things. We have films and movies and books and plays that try to interpret all this pain. Uh, that, I guess, is the job of the artist. More than that, the job of the artist is to prophesy, to tell us or to give us a hint as to what's coming, what's coming. I went through my movie file the other night and I thought about it and I thought, well, it's just amazing. Years and years ago, I uh, used to review films. Let's see, for three years I did print reviews in the Berkeley Monthly and I prided myself on picking films that would become classics, you know, give it a decade or so. The ones that the critics sneered at when they first came out and I'm happy to say that a lot of times I, I, I was right. I was right on the button. I think um, the day has passed when movies are uh, the sort of thing you review uh, on a daily basis. I remember when I wrote print reviews, it drove me nuts because the editors would want a review of the movie that was opening this weekend. Now, thank goodness, um, all that's over with. Most people wait for the DVD or they wait for the thing to come on cable television. And if they go rushing out to see the movie on the first weekend, they probably don't want to read reviews anyway. Uh, no, I think movies are like a lot of things. We have to let them soak. I, I noticed lately that some of us, some of us are beginning to have, uh, what would you call it, um, shelves like bookcases. We put our, our DVDs on a shelf and look at the backs. Uh, that's weird. It's very strange. I still don't really do it. I want my books on the bookshelf. The movies still find their way into a drawer. But <laughs> if I look at my lists, especially the ones on HBO, I can find most of my favorite, favorite movies, um, I wish they wouldn't melt so fast, the ones on the uh, the old DVD tapes. But this weekend, this past weekend, I looked up and saw um, a major film called Missing. And I thought, I wonder why, I wonder why they're, uh, they're putting that back on cable. Years ago, I reviewed that movie, Missing. It was all about the coup down in Chile, you know. And uh, uh, the director, Costa Gavras, came to Berkeley. He went to Wheeler Hall, and there was a screening of the movie there. 
there were gentlemen in um, those gray and black suits at all the entrances I think they were worried about. <laughs> Terrorists? Who knows? Uh, that was back, uh, that's back in the 1980s. And uh, I think it would be interesting to go back and look at the review for Missing and see because it was one of the first movies that actually, uh, well, it hit me between the eyes. Uh, it was a, an expose of the crimes of our government, uh, our interference in the affairs of other nations, and it was a, a major film. It used uh, stars like Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek, and so it reached a lot of people, unlike all the wonderful documentaries that play at La Peña and at the uh, esoteric arcane movie houses where we see those movies that... Uh, Nobody else sees, you know. Uh, I think always, what is it? The the ultimate uh, Warren Beatty's Reds, of course, tried to make a popular movie out of uh, Ten Days That Shook the World. <clears throat> With some success, some success, it's true. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> Missing has been running on cable. And I watched it very carefully, and they didn't cut. They didn't cut much of it. Maybe some of it was cut. I know that when I reviewed it, they cut all of the passages that I found the um, <clears throat> the memos from Kissinger uh, about what we should do in Chile uh, in order to uh, oust Allende. Anyway, let me look at this old review and see. I think that how it was then is almost exactly the way it is now. That's the point I want to make. Uh, I start this with a note from the preface to Leaves of Grass written by Walt Whitman in 1855. Let's see, yes, 160 years ago, Walt Whitman writes, These United States themselves are essentially the greatest poem. Here at last is something in the doings of man that corresponds with the broadcast doings of the day and night. God bless him, <laughs> Walt Whitman. I doubt if Walt Whitman would hear America singing these days. Um, artists and movie makers everywhere are chronicling her sins. Uh, the Greek filmmaker... Costa Gavras made a movie about our, that is the United States military or the United States State Department involvement in the Chilean coup. Um, now this movie operates on the assumption that the CIA uh, participated in the violent overthrow of the freely elected Allende government. That was in September of 1973. You remember it was the other 9-11. Uh, now, this is serious stuff. Uh, Universal Pictures, I guess, was the distributor. Uh, let's see, who wrote the... Um, <laughs> who wrote the book... Uh, Hauser is his name, yes. Costa Gavras was the film maker. Uh, 
Let's see. If we, we, if the United States is in part responsible for the death of the socialist president, Salvador Allende, uh, then we have to take uh, the blame for the deaths of more than 20,000 other Chileans, according to this film. The image, the symbol in the film, was a wild white horse galloping through the terrorized city streets. I think Costa Gavras gets, uh, gets points for that image, that wild white horse. Yes, Santiago. Actually, in the movie, we never know, we are never told exactly where this is, where the movie is taking place. At the end, we see a wooden box. It contains the body of a young man, an American, who died in the coup, and uh, it's directed, it's mailed back to the United States, and the address is from Santiago. So that's the only mention of Chile in the movie. Uh, now, Costa Gavras is smart. He chose Sissy Spacek and Jack Lemmon in order to get a mass audience for this picture. Uh, I thought Jack Lemmon did, did an incredible job of portraying American political naivete. He isn't cute about it at all. Uh, as one of the uh, agents, one of the American bureaucrats says to him at some point, uh, you cannot have it both ways. We all know, what is it, one hand washes the other. We all uh, benefit from the luxuries and the privileges of uh, a developed nation at the same time. Uh, we want to be good. We want to be uh, politically correct. We don't want anyone to blame us for the evils of the world. Uh, I guess Costa Gavras is pretty sophisticated. Uh, <laughs> I guess he's Greek. There was a crowd at the benefit screening in Wheeler Auditorium. Uh, that was dated, let's see, February 1982. Uh they asked him, the audience asked him if he was afraid for his own life. He said he didn't think about things like that. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's when I noticed those men in suits, you know. Not anything like what we wear in Berkeley. They were at the entrances and exits of the auditorium. Uh, there were Chilean political exiles in the audience, and they were... Uh, much impressed with the authenticity and accuracy in recreating the atmosphere surrounding the coup. Uh, they added that, in truth, things had been even worse in terms of the numbers dead and missing. Yes, the movie had the feeling of documentary feel to it. Uh, the visits to the morgue were terrifying. Uh, now, Costa Gavras is one of those glamorous filmmakers. He has this persona. Uh, he answered the questions with the air of a poet, saying that he was going for universals in the film, that these were events which could happen anywhere. Yeah, okay. Um, he was born in Athens. Let's see. Costa Gavras became a French citizen at some point. Uh I'm remembering his earlier political films. You remember State of Siege, Z, 
The film prior to Missing was Claire de Femme. That was a grown-up love story, yes, with Romy Schneider and Yves Montand. Now, these pictures, you know, Missing, you can get that if you go to the, uh, go to the, uh, Blockbuster, go to the film store and check it out. Maybe it's in the library. Anyway, the screenplay was written with Donald Stewart. The book is by uh, a lawyer, by the attorney Thomas Hauser. That was his name, H-A-U-S-E-R. The title of the book is The Execution of Charles Horman, H-O-R-M-A-N. Costa Gavras changed the name slightly, quote, to protect the innocent and to protect the film, unquote. This book is a uh, basically true story, factual story of Charles, a young man played by John Shea. Uh, he is the end product of the American dream. He's this... Um, all-American son of an affluent New York businessman, that's Jack Lemmon, the Renaissance man of our time. Oh, they were so, so sweet, those, uh, those hippie men. After all the best schools and after graduating from Harvard, this young man works in TV, WNET, his television station. Yes, he's a news writer, editor, documentary filmmaker. And he's a research historian in a federal poverty program. All of this is very familiar. <laughs> anyway, Charles Horman climbed in a van with his wife in 1971. The wife is played by Sissy Spacek. Six months later, they settled in Santiago. They work on children's books. They're writing a fable. Charles writes for Finn, F-I-N, a non-profit magazine published by some young Americans. At that time, it was a source of information for Chileans. It was about North America, and it was about the anti-Vietnam War movement. Now, Charles is not the dilettante that his father takes him for. He is a nonviolent idealist, the sort of young man who acts out his dreams of a better world. His notebook is always with him. These notes uh, may be the cause of his death. Apparently, he saw too much. At any rate, he wrote down too many facts, too much information. He was 31 when he disappeared from his home on September 16, 1973. The neighbors tell conflicting stories of his abduction at gunpoint. One witness says that the vehicle which took him away entered the soccer stadium used by the police as a holding pen for political prisoners. Yes, buried in a wall. Anyway, the action of the film involves um, the search of the wife and the father for the missing young man, Charles. They trudge through the morgues, the hospitals, the jails, through a labyrinth of diplomatic double talk and BS. Finally, they stumble on the truth. Um, <laughs> yes, the truth, yes, the most amoral American agent says, yes. 
Well, we cannot have it both ways. That's what he said. Uh, your truth, my truth. Charles got in the way. America has to protect the interests of 3,000 businesses, the ones it operates in Chile. You remember, it was the copper industry. The treatment of women in the film was uh, worth noticing. Uh, Costa Gavras, he eliminated women from the piles of bodies, the mounds of dead and dying. I wasn't sure this was realistic. I guess, you know, battered female bodies are so often used to flesh out scenes of horror. I was kind of relieved just not to see them. Uh, the women in the central roles are uh, definitely the highly conscious feminist sorts, you know. No stereotypical behavior. Janice Rule was marvelous as a regal American journalist. She knows what's going down. Uh, there's another friend played by Melanie Myron. Uh, another actress that I can remember seeing in movies about the Holocaust years ago. Playing for Time, that was her movie, right? Uh, written by Arthur Miller about women in the death camps. Anyway, Jack Lemon assumes that this woman, Janice Rule, uh, was having an affair with his son. It's kind of confusing. Um, he finally understands that uh, that was not the case. That women could be friends with his son without there being anything anything going on. Uh, there is a definitive statement in one scene. We see soldiers tearing the trousers of women giving orders that from now on the women of their country will wear skirts. Now, if that doesn't foreshadow the, <laughs> the, the scenes, yes, with the burqas and the, the horrible veiling of women throughout the world today. Finally, it's the grim realization that this film is honest uh, that gives it the power, the the sock in the gut. Um, back in February 1982, the State Department saw fit to issue some press releases. They denied the content of this film. They denied any role in the military coup or any role in the cover-up of the case of Charles Horman. Uh, according to the book by Thomas Hauser, the facts are, in the summer... Uh, let's see, let's see, the summer of 72, in any case, um, no, actually, it's true, the Berkeley Monthly cut several paragraphs of my essay, and I don't know where they are, uh, there were notes of a meeting, uh, President Nixon, Henry Kissinger, CIA Director Richard Helms, Attorney General John Mitchell, that was September 1970 in the White House Oval Office. President Nixon instructed Helms that the CIA should, quote, play a direct role in organizing a military coup d'etat in Chile. There's much more detailed evidence for anybody who wishes to study the process of the extermination of Marxism in Chile. That was the proclaimed goal of the junta. Anyway... Later, William Colby, the director of the CIA, denied it all. <laughs> in 
in the Christian Science Monitor yet. 1974, September 11th, right. He stated that the American State Department did not intervene in the domestic affairs of Chile after Allende's election. Okay, it's vividly clear, folks, that a time has come in our history when what is known has very little connection with what is done. Used to be governments had to fool some of the people some of the time. Today, moral justification for acts of oppression is just old hat. Even hypocrisy has nearly gone out of style. We don't need it anymore. This has been Jennifer Stone. I was reviewing Costa Gavras' film, Missing. Check it out. Until next time, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadow. Meditation Center invites you to a day of spiritual practice and discussion with Sylvia Borstein and Larry Yang, two longtime Buddhist practitioners. This event benefits EBMC, a diverse community sharing wisdom teachings and social engagement. Our programs include evening and day-long classes and weekly sitting groups. All regular programs are offered on a gift economics basis. This event with Larry Yang and Sylvia Borstein is on Sunday, January 23rd from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Pauley Ballroom on the UC Berkeley campus, 23 MLK Student Union Building, Bancroft Way and Telegraph Avenue. For advanced tickets, go to eastbaymeditation.org or call 510-735-8734. This event is wheelchair accessible.